welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Why is an experimental mindset important? And what do I mean by an experimental mindset? I want you to go into all of these accommodations and this practice almost like a scientist or a detective, meaning that you're not going to judge yourself and say, this is going to work or this isn't going to work or this is, you know, you're going to have a hypothesis like, oh, I think this might be the most effective accommodation to try. So I'm going to have a hypothesis and then I'm going to implement and do and see what happens. Okay, and the reason this is important is multifaceted. But first, I want to explain how it aligns with the moment we are in history as parents of PDA children. Okay, so so many of the families I work with are seeking, seeking, seeking for a professional that has the answers that they don't, or that give you permission to do something that you already know is needed, right? And so often I say like, you don't need a diagnosis to start accommodating your child and see if it's helpful. You don't need to even know if your kid's PDA. It's more about like with your own two eyes, is this making my child's nervous system relaxed, (laughs) right? And the reason we don't allow ourselves to follow that intuition or our observation is because of how much we're getting outside of us. And, you know, I know many of you have been gaslit. I know that, you know, there's judgment left, right, upwards, sideways through every, you know, moment of your day. But there is a part of you that knows what your child needs. It's just you haven't allowed yourself to trust it. Okay, this is not a new moment in history. This is not the first time that autism has, or a part of the autism spectrum has not been considered quote real or has not been considered something other than a behavioral or a psychiatric disorder. Okay, so if you read Neurotribes, which is like the history of neurodiversity, which I have, There's a whole section about how what changed the categorization and treatment of autism in the 1960s was a group of parents networked who actually used their own indicators. This is in the back of a written book that this dad did all this research on and he had indicators. Not not all of them were what we would consider appropriate for autism now. But they were not based on like the kid is a psychiatric risk, right? They need to be institutionalized, et cetera. And parents would tear out the back of the book and send it in through the mail and be like, this describes my child, right? And so it was this organic grassroots movement that then professionals had to pay attention to. 
And so now we're looking back, you know, 65 years and it's like, oh yeah, autism exists. It's a neurotype, et cetera. And we're sort of at that same cusp where were the parents tearing out the pages metaphorically in the back of the book and finding each other and being like, no, this isn't, my child isn't a behavioral problem. No, my child isn't a psychiatric disorder, right? The reason I bring this up is to give you comfort in the sense of like, you're not making this up and it's not that there's anything wrong with any of the professionals. They really just haven't caught up with this. And and the reason I feel so comfortable with this is because I'm an academic and I've gone through the scientific process. I know that at the beginning it's inductive, right? That like we're the ones collecting data and developing hypotheses and testing them and seeing with our own two eyes the empirical data and like eventually there will be more systematic studies but until then you have permission and i encourage you to really understand that you're at the forefront and and that's okay like it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong it's just difficult as a parent to not have professionals supporting you, right? And this is where my train, my professional training in my past life has made me much more comfortable just advocating and being like, no, this is what it is. Like, I'm sorry that your peer-reviewed journals haven't caught up with it, but like, we still have to support our kids. The other reason it's important is not just like pie in the sky, we're in a movement, which of course, like, yes, we are, but day to day, I want to tell you why this is hard. And you know, one, because we get sidetracked as parents seeking external answers and, and in doing so are made to feel like we're bad parents. We don't know what we're talking about. We're not intelligent and we need to try something else. Right. I've done that. Like I spent a lot of time trying to seek out the professionals. Like I went all over the DC area looking for the professional who would understand my child, right? And it was that aha moment of like, this doesn't exist and therefore we have to create it that shifted things for me. And the same is true on a micro level of like shifting the like, someone outside of me has all the answers and I just need to find that person or that book or that information because all the energy that is allocated to that is energy that's preventing you from taking taking some leaps with experimentation, right? Second, if we are not in the experimental mindset, we compare ourselves to other families. And I'm not just talking about um, neurotypical families, I'm also talking about other PDA families. I'm talking about me right? Like, I am constantly experimenting with what works for my family without judgment of myself or others, right? And, and the same should be an invitation to you of like, don't let other people tell you how you need to do this. Experiment with what works for your family. I work with some coaching clients who have screen time limits, 
who decide that their priority is to make their kid go to school and then they make other decisions in other parts of their life and there is nothing wrong with their decisions. I've seen their children thrive as well. Other families have no screen time limits because that's what works for their family. Some families like mine, like I left my career, we moved across the country, we've made huge structural changes, which we've needed to do. Other families have not needed to do that. So I just want to emphasize that as like releasing this idea that there's some set of rules and if you do them right and you'll have like your outcomes that you want and if if you don't, you're doing something wrong. Third, parents get stuck in information overload, okay? So, and I've been there of like, I need to read more and more and more and more and more, and then I'll figure out how to do it, right? And, and this is an invitation to like, put your books aside for two weeks and try some stuff, right? Systematically and know that like, books are amazing, but also allowing yourself to like read a novel over the break instead of researching PDA. <laughs> and I've had to do that too. Like sometimes I work with clients who've read more than I have, because at a certain point I was like, what really serves me is reading about Buddhism. <laughs> and like, I've figured out what for my son is working. Okay. And then the fourth is we have to get into the experimental mindset because there, this is a fluid practice that's going to change over your children's lifetime. Okay. So for example, when my son was in burnout and four and a half to like six and a half, I went very intensively into the play accommodation and into the nervous system support accommodation as the primary tools to reconnect with him and get him out of burnout. If your child is 16, play is not necessarily going to be like what you focus your energy on, right? Or we need to adapt it to the 16 year old, which might be like playing Minecraft together instead of rolling around on the ground and playing baby puppies and making sounds. Also, my son has evolved to where like he doesn't need quite as much play. But for two years, we had we had an au pair and we then before that I had friends living with me who like the main thing I asked them to do to help me was play because I couldn't play for five hours a day. <laughs> so it's also understanding like what's more effective at this point in my child's life and it's okay to shift. I have a lot of families who are like, I hate play. It's the worst. It's tedious. I, I totally get it. It is profoundly impactful for young PDA children, but you're also choosing the cost benefit for yourself, right? If it's going to put you in such a bad mood that you can't be non-reactive with your child, don't do it. Okay, so this is the whole point of like letting go of seeking external answers, letting go of comparison, letting go of the information. Like if I just have enough information, I can make this better and um, not allowing for fluidity in the practice. Okay, so those are the reasons that an experimental mindset is helpful. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. 
to go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com.